This is the Josh Hammer Show. Every so often, you come across a headline that just sticks with you. Months later, years later, you're still thinking about it. What in the world did I just read? It was back during the Black Lives Matter Antifa summer, the summer from hell of 2020, that absolutely horrific year during the COVID-19 lockdowns when cities were burning, when properties were being vandalized. And we had the great racial reckoning of 2020. Critical race theory, intersectionality, it was all on the ascendant. America, America, we were told by the powers that be, was finally, finally going to have its great, great racial reckoning moment. And it was that summer that I remember this headline out of Wisconsin. So you had a lot of people talking about bringing down statues of slaveholders, folks like even like Thomas Jefferson, they told us had to go. It wasn't just the Confederates. It wasn't just Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. No, it was Thomas Jefferson. Well, the folks in Wisconsin went actually even further than that. And I remember this debate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, one of the furthest left of all left-wing institutions in America. You had students there petitioning to take down the statue of Abraham Lincoln. Yes, you heard that right. Not John C. Calhoun, not the man who in the antebellum period in South Carolina referred to slavery as a positive good, but Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator himself. Why is that? Well, because students of color, as the term now stipulates, we call them, at University of Wisconsin-Madison, they said that Abraham Lincoln was triggering because he himself was a terrible racist. That incident in and of itself is a microcosm of so much that ails our current political moment, so much that ails the insanity that we hear from far left circles in particular. This idea that we are going to judge everyone throughout history based on contemporary 20th or 21st century moral standards. Did Abraham Lincoln harbor some feelings of potential animus when it came to black people or other people that did not look like him? Yeah, he probably did. Does that mean that he was any less great of a man than he was? The fact that he, like so many others, fell prejudice to the bigotries of his times to a lesser extent? No, it doesn't. This idea of judging men throughout history through contemporary lenses, the idea that all the founding fathers were just racist old white slaveholders, absolutely disgusting stuff. And it's doubly disgusting when you consider that we just had the recent three-day holiday weekend of President's Day, Washington's birthday. One of those infamous slaveholders, of course, was the greatest founding father of all, George Washington, the founder of the country. We are bringing on the absolutely perfect guest here to the Josh Hammer Show to talk with you about the legacy of the Founding Fathers and George Washington in particular. And we're bringing on Lee Habib. He is the host of the nationally syndicated Our American Stories. He is a frequent columnist and essayist at Newsweek, which is where I hang my hat as well. He wrote a brilliant essay for us over the long weekend on George Washington's legacy. He's not just a slaveholder, no matter what you might hear from your local critical race theory, your intersectionality activist folks. We're going to take it to a quick commercial break here. We'll be right back with Lee Habib. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and 
producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We're joined once again here by broadcasting legend Lee Habib. Lee is the host of the nationally syndicated show Our American Stories, as well as a frequent columnist and essayist for Newsweek, where I am very happy to hang my hat myself. So, Lee Habib, thanks so much for joining us again on such short notice. Nice to be here, Josh. So your most recent essay for Newsweek was an interesting one. I wanted to bring you on and talk about it. It's very timely, of course, since just on Monday we had the President's Day holiday, or as the federal government officially calls this holiday, they they call it Washington's birthday officially on the federal government calendar, which is someone born on Lincoln's birthday myself. I, I take a little bit of umbrage to. I like to celebrate multiple of our great presidents, but your essay actually really is on both of them. It's actually on both Washington and Lincoln. So this essay is entitled George Washington, The Mightiest Name on Earth. Uh, why don't we just start there for those who have not had the chance to read your latest contribution to Newsweek. It's talking really about a speech that Abraham Lincoln gave on February 22nd, 1842. Why don't you set the scene for us and walk us through what you wrote here? Well, you know, I would rather just use Lincoln's words because they're remarkable. He he gives a speech about Lincoln. And here's what he says. Again, 1842. We are met to celebrate this day and it's celebrating Washington's birthday, not President's Day, Washington's birthday. Washington is the mightiest name of earth, long since mightiest in the cause of civil liberty, still mightiest in moral reformation. On that name, a eulogy is expected. It cannot be. To add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington is alike impossible. Let none attempt it. In solemn awe, pronounce the name and in its naked, deathless splendor, leave it shining on. My goodness. My goodness. T- what can t- you say? What can you say? I mean, it's hard to even know where to go from there, but what are your impressions upon reading this paragraph that really only someone like Lincoln could possibly try to put words to? Because he truly understand what Washington had done, right? I mean, if we really think about what the leftists are up to, it's to get us to not revere to not love the people who built the country. Because if you don't love something, it's hard to defend it, right? You, you can't defend your family if you don't love your family. And so Lincoln understood what Washington did. He understood the heroic nature of the man, the, the actual uh, historical nature of the man. I mean, he think about the things he does, Josh, as a, as a human being. Um, he leads an army against the mighty, mighty British army and the mighty British Navy. And there's not an army here. He has to form one. And there's not a government to pay for it. 
This is a collection of states at the time. None of them are very interested in paying for it. In fact, none of them ever do pay for it. It's half the reason we have the, the Constitutional Convention, how to pay our army and how to outfit one. So, we, you know, and, and by the way, when Washington takes this job, as the great David McCullough says in Our American Stories on our show, now he's passed, but he said these words, these men didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know the outcome. We know the outcome, but Washington didn't. So in 1776, Washington is betting that the British won't come, that they won't send too many forces because they've got, well, they've got a little problem in Europe. If they send too many forces to America, the French will invade or the Spanish will invade. So he's hoping they'll send some light forces. He spread out, spreads out through the countryside and fights a guerrilla war. We've got a lot of land. They don't have a lot of soldiers. We'll wear them down. It's sort of guerrilla warfare that we've been trying to fight in the Middle East, that we tried to fight in Vietnam, and we could not win. But what Washington sees in the New York Harbor when he's sitting there looking at this armada coming in is, well, it just depresses him. His entry that day, and it, the, the book 1776 leads off with this entry. That's David McCullough's biography of the year. The entry is George Washington. It said, few men know the predicament we're in. Wow. And so he has to run. If you remember, he come, he goes from Brooklyn to Manhattan, escapes, and then leads, leads and learns and teaches his men to fight another day. And so that's just one thing he does. He leaves his home. He leaves Mount Vernon, Josh, for nine years. He's one of the richest men in the, in the country. He's married into wealth. He already has his own wealth. He has this beautiful estate. And there he is. In fact, he sees Martha rarely and on one occasion in Valley Forge. Great place to reunite your marriage, Josh. <laughs> Try that with your wife. Say, come on, let's go to Valley Forge in the winter and camp. I'm taking notes over here. Camping, right? So he does that. Then at the end, he, he surrenders his commission, right? He resigns his commission. This has never been done in world history. You've got to trace back to the, the great Cincinnatus to, to see what Washington was looking to, to, to copy, uh, to imitate. And when King George III learns that Washington might be doing this, he says, if Washington resigns his commission, he's the greatest man that ever lived. Uh, so then he resigns his commission, Josh, and then he, then he, obviously, without him sort of proceeding or or looking over the proceedings of the Constitutional Convention, it may not have happened. But there was Washington, not speaking a lot. He wasn't the most eloquent man. He wasn't necessarily the greatest intellectual there, but he was there, steady, holding the ship down. Then he becomes president and serves not one term but two. But he could have served three or four. Right. Like Roosevelt did, like right. Franklin Roosevelt did. In fact, the only thing that got Franklin Roosevelt out of office was his death. But what did what did Washington do? He surrendered power. Again, he surrendered power. There was no 22nd Amendment then. He he just surrendered it because he thought two two terms was enough. And this could start to feel like Washington was king. And he had no desire to be a monarch. Um, though I think some of his tendencies were more towards central power than, let's say, Jefferson. Monarchy was not in his blood, or he could have taken it, and he didn't. Extraordinary life, right? Extraordinary life. And this is what Lincoln knew. He understood it. He studied it. And if more Americans studied it, they'd hold the same opinion of Washington. Not that he just owned slaves, Josh. Everybody who was rich in the 18th century owned slaves. That was utterly normal. Was What was utterly unusual was radical, radical 
was how Washington lived his, lived his life, the sacrifices and the selflessness of this great man. Uh, he is to be revered and indeed is the mightiest name on earth. Uh, hands down in American history, I don't think there's any more indispensable man than George Washington. You know, there's so much good stuff in there to to unpack, Lee. And, you know, the timing for our conversation is actually so auspicious because just earlier on the show this very week, we had on Johnny Burka, who's the president of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, to talk about his brand new book for which the great Dr. Larry Arn wrote a preface for that book. And this new book is called Gateway to Statesmanship, where Johnny just surveys great speeches and writings throughout history going back three, four thousand years. And he actually chose George Washington to be on the cover of this very book. And he actually used the exact same analogy to Cincinnatus that you just used here. So, uh, you know, the, the listeners of this show are getting a, a, a strong and proper dose of, of just a sense as, as to how magisterial a man George Washington was. Uh, Lee, of all the things that you just mentioned there, and, and really there is just so much, the selflessness, the guerrilla warfare in the military, there, there was no military, of course. He's going against the greatest military in the world, the presiding over the Constitutional Convention, the leaving after two terms. Is there, is there one thing that you could point to and, and possibly say, wow, like that right there, that is the singular thing that I would say is his most shining legacy item of all? I think I know what my answer is, but I'm curious what, what your answer would be. You know, I'll tell you, the most, one of the most interesting stories we ever did on Our American Stories, we, we ask our audience for stories about historical figures. And this fellow writes in who is an Air Force Academy graduate, and he sent in a speech he gave about George Washington. And he talked about how what Washington had done when he'd resigned his commission was let the world know that the army was there to serve the people. The people weren't there to serve the army. This had never been done before. And he, he started off with the kids saying, when you see an American soldier, what do you feel? And they say honor and they say love and they say courage. And he says, do you know in other countries when people see a soldier, they're afraid of the soldier? They're afraid of the soldier. They're afraid of the cop. Go to, go to Uganda, go to Africa, go to the Eastern block of the so former satellites to the Soviet Union, go to China, right? They don't see the state as protecting the citizens and their lives. And, and, and he said, remember that George Washington is the man that's responsible for that. And so I think that it flows naturally, Josh, that that same guy who would do that would then leave after two terms as president. Yeah, and that if would I, be my number one. I, and and I, I fully concur with that. I mean, to me, I mean, everyone thought that George Washington would just serve forever. You know, it's funny. You mentioned how he was a little bit more in favor of central power than perhaps the Jeffersonian, Madisonian wing of the American founding. And, and no doubt about that. I mean, Washington... John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, what became the Federalist Party in America's first two-party system, they, they definitely were bigger proponents of presidential power, of Article II power. There were all sorts of debates along these lines. You know, if you go back to the not-so-pleasant uh, not so writings in the election of 1800, it was the Jeffersonian newspapers that were accusing John Adams of, of a lot of bad stuff, among them the fact that he was an open, unvarnished monarch out in the open. But nonetheless, the, the, the precedent had just been set a few years prior of George Washington leaving, leaving voluntarily after these two terms, giving this extraordinarily eloquent farewell address with so much prescient wisdom embodied in. And we all recall what he said in that speech about beware of foreign entanglements when it comes to foreign policy. So much in there that has just withstood the test of time. Lee, I want to I backtrack a little bit because uh, the context for, for a conversation here is not just 
Washington's birthday and President's Day, but the fact that it was Lincoln himself who, who was giving this really remarkable speech on, on the 110th anniversary of George Washington's birth. I, I, I'm curious, because I'm actually not, not entirely sure how much I know about this myself. How much did Lincoln specifically look up to Washington? Lincoln had a lot of idols in his life. He loved Henry Clay. He loved Henry Clay's politics, the American system, tariffs and all of that. But how much did he look to Washington in particular? Because these words are just so powerful, honestly. Oh, I could find you a dozen more speeches for those references. And I, I was looking to Lincoln for that, that was the best. You know, you look at his Cooper Union speech too. I mean, because it, it, it's 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 fabulous. I think it may be his most important speech because he was defending the the founders and their record on slavery, um, and their voting record in Congress on slavery because it's fascinating. And also George Washington and and looking and, and defending what he did with the Northwest Ordinance, abolishing slavery in these Northwest territories. Right. So the man who owns slaves abolishes slaves. Talk about some nuance progressives couldn't possibly handle, you know, in the contextual times of his day, this makes him the a rabid abolitionist, right? And, and and yet he held slaves too. Uh, the the irony and all, the, all, the, all the, the painful irony. I mean, look, we know Jefferson towards the end of his life saw his owning of slaves as something he knew history and God would judge him on, uh, poorly for. Um, but that notwithstanding, Lincoln, Lincoln revered the founders. And of course, when you're revering the founders, you, you, in, you, when you put things in proper order, and he's a man who understands order, right? And he was a great lawyer, Lincoln, a great yes. lawyer, a world-class lawyer. Um, well, you, you can't not make the case that George Washington stands out above all of them, because it's a simple case to make, actually, Josh. No, of course. It, 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 it absolutely is. Um, but I was just curious, because Lincoln was known to, I mean, he was an extraordinarily well-read man. I mean, he was well-versed in the Western canon. He was a biblically literate statesman. He was quoting scripture left and right. He famously once referred to America as a, quote, almost chosen people. So I, I think the influences that he had intellectually upstream on his life were were vast and manifold. So, But 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 certainly, I mean, you could not be more accurate, of course. I mean, George Washington was was the most formidable of all the founding fathers, and Lincoln was nothing if, if not an, an incredible, incredible student and disciple of the political philosophy of, of, of the American founding here. Uh, Lee, let me ask you a, a just a, it, might, it might seem a trivial question. But I'm just genuinely curious here. I kind of mentioned earlier in the show how the federal government does refer to this holiday as Washington's birthday. I, again, as someone who's born on Lincoln's birthday, I take a little umbrage to that. Uh, do, do you I, I'm really I'm just curious in your personal life, do you refer to this holiday as President's Day or do you actually use the federal government approved title of Washington's birthday? Oh, I just use Washington's birthday. I can't. It's not Millard Fillmore Day. Um, it's just not. <laughs> no disrespect to those fans out there who love Millard Fillmore. And there's some, some things to love about him and some things not to love about him. But George Washington, for me, is what that day is all about. And uh, and, and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, these are the two for me. Yeah. When I say President's Day or think about it, I think of Washington. Then quickly, I think of Lincoln. They deserve their own day. They deserve their own holiday. Not sure why that hasn't happened yet, um, but I, I don't don't expect the progressives to fight for that. We're joined here by Lee Habib. He's the host of the nationally syndicated show Our American Stories and a frequent columnist and essayist for us at Newsweek. We're going to take it to a very quick commercial break. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more from Lee Habib. This is the Josh Hammer Show. Go to Newsweek.com and sign up for the Josh Hammer Newsletter. Catch bonus episodes of The Josh Hammer Show. Stand up and fight against wokeism. And stay up to date on what's happening in America and around the world from The Josh Hammer Show. Welcome. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So, Lee, earlier you were rightfully talking about the ridiculous notion that because Washington or Jefferson or some of these great men happened to own slaves, that we should judge them through the moral lens of the 21st century. You know, another thing that we hear in contemporary politics today is, oh, the country's never been more divided than this. And there's all these comparisons to to the 1850s and, and the great antebellum debates over, over slaves and the Kansas-Nebraska Act and all that there. But, you know, we were just talking about the election of 1800 and the, deba- the debates between the Federalist Party and Thomas Jefferson's Democratic Republican Party. The, the, these guys disagreed viciously, and they, they used very charged ad hominem language against one another. Why don't you just talk a little bit more about that, about what this era of American history can teach us and, properly speaking, contextualize for us what our current political debates have and perhaps don't have? Well, the Jefferson crowd couldn't stand the monarchy crowd as they saw it. The monarchy crowd was George Washington, frankly, and the monarchy crowd was Alexander Hamilton. And Jefferson had a different idea. And by the way, John Adams, before he leaves, plants John Marshall there and and plants a judiciary that'll fight the the, the future of this Jeffersonian uh, ideal. And so these battles we're having over the Supreme Court, over sovereignty, over power, decentralized or centralized. They were raging then, and they go back to the nation's founding. Our favorite story by far is a historian who wrote a book about the war inside Benjamin Franklin's house. Benjamin Franklin had a bastard child, William. We all know from the picture of him holding the kite. Men didn't do that back then. They just pushed the kid out. They didn't want to deal with the opprobrium of society, walking around with a bastard child. Franklin loved this boy, raised this kid, took him to England, helped him secure the royal governorship of New Jersey. Well, when Franklin is thinking about signing the declaration, has given the task to Thomas Jefferson to write it, he lets his son know, hey, son, look, we're about to commit an act of high treason. And uh, there's war. There's going to be a declaration of war. We're divorcing the king of England. And the son essentially says, look, dad, I'm, I'm not with you. I'm with the crown and I can't help you. If the king says round up those guys who signed the Declaration of Independence and hang them, I can't help you. Well, Benjamin Franklin says to his son, hey, I can't help you if we round up the royal governors, which, of course, Ben Franklin did. He had his son imprisoned in the Litchfield Gal for two years. It was the worst prison in America filled with reprobates and sodomites. These two were never to talk again. William came back to New York to try to figure out how to form a counter counterinsurgency against his father and the Patriots, ultimately go to England, the two would never speak again, and Ben Franklin disowned his son. So the idea that we've never been through more difficult times, or that politics did, doesn't split families, this is new, look to one of our great men of letters of science, and one of our most most beloved founders 
and we will find bitter acrimony within their own family. It's a very powerful example. And, you know, I think the lesson for for contemporary followers of our politics who perhaps are spending a little too much time watching cable news or, or surfing through their social media feeds and are having their, their you know, their various you know, bursts of, of passion and uh, how could I possibly associate with this person or you're not my friend anymore. I mean, you know, look back to what was, you know, 200 plus years ago and the country has actually survived just fine. So perhaps it's time to, to cool down just 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 a little bit with all this talk from my vantage point of, of so-called amicable divorce between the states. Some of, some of this really hyperbolic talk that I hear from certain certain quarters that I think is just historically unjustified. So, uh, Lee, I want to take the conversation now in a, in, a, in a slightly different direction. So whether we're calling it officially President's Day or not, this is kind of the time of, of the calendar year where many people just start to debate uh, presidents. So who, who, who are the good ones? Who are the bad ones? I'm kind of just curious real quick if you had to name from your perspective, one, the most underrated president in American history and then two, the most overrated president in American history. I'm curious who the first two in each category are, or the first the first one in each category who comes to mind. I would have a tie for underrated with uh, James Polk and Calvin Coolidge, um, uh, both for their policies, their mindset, but also as men, really interesting human beings. Um, and Coolidge's memoir, which we did a whole segment on, we had a Coolidge impersonator read from it is one of the most spectacular memoirs. I think it clocks in at like 260 pages, but it reveals a life and a mindset about citizenship, about uh, about governing and the proper role of the state as it relates to the individual. And it all came from this practical upbringing he had in a little tiny town called Plymouth Notch um, in New England. And and it, it is just simply beautiful. And Polk, well, what he did in, the, in terms of expanding the scale and scope of his country, the the sight and vision he had for it, you know, taking that Louisiana Purchase decision that Jefferson made and sort of doubling down on it. having having that vision for the size, scale, and scope of the country. Polk doesn't get enough credit for this, and he deserves it. So those would be my two most. Uh, I, I, and I think the Kennedy. I think Kennedy's the most overrated president. Now he didn't have the time, but I don't know what he did. I don't know what he did. You know, Roosevelt, I don't like some of the things he did, but I do like the way he prosecuted World War II. You know, when I went into the Oval Office and Ronald, I got to shake Ronald Reagan's hand, there was a picture of Roosevelt in the office. And I jokingly said, as a college kid who was a little bit of a wisecracker, hey, did that come with the office? And he said, son, the president prosecuted a great war. So here was Reagan trying to become the president of all the people had chosen the picture of Roosevelt and had probably said that many times before to wisecracking young conservatives. Um, and so I, I, Kennedy, I would just say most overrated because he's so written about, so revered. But I ask people, what did he actually do? And what was he trying to accomplish? I, I, I do think the tax cuts were significant. Uh, and then a Democrat calling for significant reductions of tax cuts to increase the Treasury, because that's what he predicted, that if we lowered taxes, the Treasury would go up. He was the original supply sider. Um, forget Reagan. Kennedy was the original supply sider. Be still my heart. <laughs> no, it's funny. I mean, JFK, to your point, I mean, he was he, he was proposing and formulating and trying to sell the American audience on the so-called Laffer curve of economic theory before Art Laffer had even invented the Laffer curve. He was the, he was he, he was literally there over 20 years before making this argument that revenue into the federal fisc is going to literally increase when you decrease the top marginal tax rate from its Eisenhower era peak of around 90 percent, which, by the way, is just 
extraordinary to think about that. I, I mean, just crazy, especially given the fact that the 1950s was actually a fairly prosperous decade, too, for America, although maybe that had more to do with, with the time period of everyone returning from war overseas. Uh, alas, I digress. But, you know, interesting point on JFK. I fully agree with you. I'm wondering, is that because, it, it, I mean, the simple reason for that that comes to my mind is he, he's America's first celebrity president, right? I mean, Barack Obama then takes that to a whole nother level. But back in the day, back in the 1960s, when it was more of the era of Life magazine and not Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, back when it was the era of the weekly magazines and, and whatnot, JFK really was kind of the first celebrity president, I think, right? I, I think so. And, and, and I think it surprised him that he was there uh, in the same way that I think Trump was surprised when he won. I mean, sometimes we think that that these presidents assume they're going to win. I think Bill Clinton was shocked. I mean, he won with what, 43% of the vote, 44? If Ross Perot hadn't stepped in there, Bill Clinton wouldn't have been president. But I actually think Clinton had a more comprehensive idea of what he'd do if he were in there than JFK did. Uh, I think Clinton was more of a student of history. I th- and I'm not sitting here saying I'm a big Clinton fan, but as Democrats go, I think Clinton had done a great job. I, I might want to put Clinton in that space for one simple reason. You know, the Democrat Party was it was in the middle of a train wreck. And I think he took the Democrat Party of 1968 because he was young then. And he saved that party from its progressive, radical progressive roots and, and took it to the center. And I'm always rooting for the reform of the Democrat Party because two good parties are better than two bad ones. And one good party is not as good as two. I like a strong opponent where we can split differences. But when there are opponents that are so off the rails, and in 1968, we have a lot of the same kinds of things happening from uh, from crime to Antifa, Weather Underground, Black Lives Matter, Black Panthers. Um, people burning flags at the Democrat convention stormed by radical leftists. And that could happen again this time too, right, Josh? I mean, the breakup, everybody talks about the crack up on the right, but the crack up on the left, the blue dogs, there's, there are no moderate Democrats left. Or if they're there, they're shy and quiet. So I think that the, what's interesting is a president like Clinton, who's, I think, underrated, managed to do this. Uh, and managed to bring his party back to its roots. And it took an Arkansas boy, right, who didn't hate the military, didn't hate the Bible, he didn't hate the country. Um, and his, his foibles and all, his personal foibles and all, um, I, I think he's an underrated president, too. I have to throw Clinton in there, too, a Democrat. Look, for all of his personal foibles, I mean, his his rhetoric when it came to kind of a return to a more moderate and appropriate size for government, kind of a, a, a reversion to the mean, so to speak, from the previous Democratic presidencies of Johnson and Jimmy Carter, even his rhetoric when it comes when it came to the abortion issue of so-called safe, legal and rare. I mean, we've gone a very long way when it comes to the Democratic Party's view on abortion from his 1990s era rhetoric of safe, legal and rare to its current rhetoric of shout your abortion from the hilltops. It's no different than just trimming your toenails or getting an appendectomy yeah. or anything like that. So you, you may... Another re- day at the office, Josh. Just another day at the office. Yeah, exactly. So so you may very well actually have answered my next question. Uh, perhaps it is Bill Clinton. But another thing, another thing I wanted to get your historian's uh, opinion on was uh, one fun debate that I was having with some friends on Monday on the holiday was was who is not just the most underrated, but the actual best Democratic Party president. And there were a few names that were floated around. Clinton was actually not one of them. The three names that some of my buddies and I were tossing around, uh, someone proposed Andrew Jackson. I said probably Grover Cleveland. And then someone else said Harry Truman. But I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I don't want to be a, a, a leading questioner as an attorney or anything like that. I'm curious what, what your answer would be as to who was the best 
Democratic Party president? Because Republicans, you know, you and I are both on the right. So it's slightly easier conversation. But who, who, who is the best Democratic president you think of all time? I think there are two ways to look at that question, right? As, as a Republican or put ourselves in a Democrat shoes and then answer that question as, a, as an empathetic Democrat, pretending we're Democrats. Uh, but uh, look, I am who I am. So I have to decide for myself who that would be. And I, I would I would pick Truman and Clinton. Uh, those would be the two. And I, I really do think what Clinton managed to do for his own party uh, is was a remarkable thing. And very, I, I think I think it's still too close for us to look at him this way. Um, but I, I think I think he was a giant for the Democrat Party, and he took on a lot of arrows and 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 a lot of hate from the far left. Um, doing so. And they weren't just words or rhetoric. I mean, he balanced a budget, for goodness sake. I mean, he and Newt Gingrich balanced a budget, Josh. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't even know what to say, right? Because that, that I don't think you can say the word balanced and budget with any degree of straight face anymore, with Republicans or Democrats. So I, I still, I've got to stick with Clinton, though Truman, you know, Truman had his, well, you know, he had his moments too. But I just think what Bill Clinton did was resuscitate and rescue a party from the rails. And we need two healthy parties in this country, uh, as opposed to two radically unhealthy parties, which I think we kind of sort of have well, I, our parties, I think, getting healthier and re returning to the people and that, that it's a party more of the middle class and not of the country clubs and not of the Chamber of Commerce um, is, I think, a remarkable thing that, that Trump has managed for all of his foibles. And boy, he's got some foibles. But, you know, as we're looking at presidents historically, I, I have to stick with Clinton, actually. I've never really thought about it before, but uh, he's my guy for this. Uh, looking at the current state of, of the Democratic Party and, you know, holding the current guy aside because he's somewhat of a, of, of a puppet, I think you and I would probably agree. I don't think that Joe Biden is necessarily the ones calling the shots day in and day out at this point in Washington, D.C. But, but holding him aside, just looking at, at the broader view of the Democratic Party, do you find yourself optimistic at all that they might return to that 1990s era Clintonian moderation? Because from my vantage point, it, it, it's, it's hard to find indications of optimism these days for the future of the Democratic Party. But I, I'm hoping, Lee, that you might be a slightly more optimistic person than I am. I am because I think things revert back to the mean, right? And and I think ultimately enough data points will come their way. Look, when you have half the cut, when you when you basically write off all of rural America, when you write off huge categories of Americans, um, there's a consequence to that. And the more you sort of cobble together groups of interest groups, special interests, you know, from a student loan bailout where you're yeah you're you're getting certain amount of votes, but all those people who went to junior college, all those people who paid off their loans, uh, you, you, in the end, the Democrat parties, it's not a principal party anymore. I don't know what it stands for anymore. It cobbles together interest groups. And 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 Clinton was trying to change that. And, and, and it wasn't that he still didn't have the teachers unions and the, and the various interest groups, because he did, but he was looking to broaden the tent of his party. And he did. And I think what's happening with progressivism is it's narrowing the party to the party of big, in the end, ultra big cities and single women and the poor and highly educated folks. And there's just not enough of them to, to win. And especially as it relates to federalism, Josh, I mean, how do you continue to win state populations this way? So I think the, the joy of our Constitution is, is it sort of sets guardrails. For, for the country. And there's the national politics, there's the state politics, there's the local politics. 
And in 85% of this country geographically, the the progressive's vision is at odds with how most Americans see and view their lives. You know, one of the great ironies of the past 20, 25 years of contemporary American politics is that if you go back 20 years ago or so, it was a left-leaning social scientist, sociologist, demographer. I'm not entirely sure how he would self-describe. A guy by the name of Roy Teixeira, who wrote this famous book where he basically argued that basic demographic trends over the ensuing 20, 30 years would essentially condemn the Republican Party to extinction in the 21st century. And to your point... I, I don't want to say that we're seeing the opposite because that would probably be overstating the the cause for optimism, but uh, it, it's something closely approximating the opposite. Um, you know, the, the the modern Democratic Party's current coalition of aggrieved interests, that's how I've phrased it at some point in the past, really is at this point condemning them to one-party status, admittedly, in large blue urban areas, but it's really condemning them to irrelevance in large swaths of what perhaps we might refer to as flyover country, and I guess we'll see how that how that turns out for them. So, Lee, it's been a really wonderful conversation. Why don't we go out on this one note here? So we, we began the conversation talking about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. We've, we've digressed a, a bit into, into the modern times here. What, why don't we zoom out a, a little bit, and as you alluded to, and I would concur with the assessment, you know, contemporary American politics doesn't necessarily reflect uh, the grandeur necess- uh, of, of the Lincolnian rhetoric, rhetoric, excuse me, about George Washington necessarily, right, to give but one example. Do, do you find yourself optimistic about the current generation's interest or ability to glean lessons, to glean the right lessons in, in statesmanship and political formation from some of the greats that we've discussed here, Washington and Lincoln. Put another way, is, is it going to get better from here? Um, is, it, is the next generation of leaders going to be better than the current generation of leaders, hopefully? I think we're always pleasantly surprised and often pleasantly disappointed, right? And anyone who tries to predict these trends, look, I listened to an Al Ferguson speech about 10 years ago where he talked about the ascent of China, and he was talking about the number of people China would have. Now China is looking like because of its one child policy and all the other things, that it's just not going to, it's going to run out of people, right? Who would have predicted that, right? So I just, I, I sort of stay out of the prediction game, but know that my daughter's generation, she's 18, is in many ways reminding me of my generation when I was 18. We were looking at the Woodstock generation. They did some good things, right? They helped end the, end the war. And we shouldn't, these foreign wars are difficult. As, as England found out in America, these foreign wars are difficult to win. Um, but, but when they were hanging flags upside down and burning them, when they were spitting on soldiers, when, they, when the fathers were asking us to call them by their first name, when the mantras don't trust anyone over 30 and, and drop acid and drop out, when I came to age, I thought they were crazy. I, I didn't want anything to do with them, and I wasn't alone. 61% of us under 21 voted for Reagan in 1980. Wow. 61% of us. Nobody could have predicted that. It shocked the New York Times. They had one of those screaming headlines that they have when they finally find out something about their own country <laughs> that they maybe should have known by reporting. And and it shocked me, too, because I thought I was alone in my support of Reagan. But I found out there were a whole lot of people who did. And my daughter's generation, the, all of the kids that they hang out with mock the cancel culture, mock wokeism. They're talking about getting married. I watched The Bachelor last night. And I know you're thinking, Habib, you got to get a life. <laughs> but I watch it for a reason. Ten years ago, they were all sleeping around. 
this episode, this current one, all of the women are looking for a serious man who wants to get married. He's looking for someone to get married. And we know how miserable the loneliness index is. And what, what people generally do is they respond to their own problems. They don't mire in them forever. So the corrective mechanisms inside human nature itself uh, is going to allow for a correction to the correction. And America's been doing this beautifully, inchoately, without polling to find out any of this stuff until after the fact. But I'm sensing something happening with young people, their dating habits, how they're going out at night. I've seen living just a little campus town in Oxford, things change just here in the 20 years I've been here. In many respects, positively, John. You know, it's funny. I was not expecting the Bachelor to come up on uh, in conversation here, but uh, given given there the opti- given the optimistic note that that we have just concluded our conversation on, I I'm, I have to say I'm very happy that it did. So once again, Lee Habib is the host of the nationally syndicated show Our American Stories and a frequent columnist and essayist at Newsweek.com. Lee, thanks so much for once again joining the Josh Hammer Show. Hey, thanks for having me, Josh. Folks, where else on the radio are you going to hear conversations like that? Like the one that we just had here with Lee Habib. You're not going to hear it anywhere else, are you? Go to Newsweek.com. Check out what we're doing. Check out all the episodes of The Josh Hammer Show. Subscribe to The Josh Hammer Report, our weekly Newsweek newsletter, if you're not already doing so. We've got big plans in store for you here on The Josh Hammer Show. We can't talk about it in full detail right now with you, but you should know that we have a lot, a lot sitting on the back burner that is coming down the pipeline here. We're going to be throwing out to you lots and lots of amazing conversations like the one that we just had with Lee. Lots of that moving forward, lots of blistering monologues for you. You're going to want to be a part of this movement. So join our movement. Join our movement. Go to Newsweek.com. We're not all liberals, believe it or not, over at Newsweek. Check out the show. Check out the Josh Hammer Report. You can go to Newsweek.com slash newsletter for that newsletter update. Check out the show. You're not going to be disappointed. The Josh Hammer Show.